0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever marveled at. I feel like I'm screaming at you. Have you ever marveled at how people can communicate with each other in the same language when there are uh, so many ways you can get it wrong? For example, if you have no interest in something, do you tend to say, I could care less, or I couldn't care less? Saying that you could care less about something implies that you really do care about whatever it is, at least a little. What you probably mean is that you don't care about whatever it is at all, hence, I couldn't care less. When you make a mistake, do you say you did it on accident or by accident? Now, prepositions are admittedly a tough part of our language, um, but while you can do something on purpose, you really can't do something on accident. Have you ever used the word irregardless? Well, the word regardless means without regard, and that's probably what you were trying to say. Adding an IR to the beginning makes that word a double negative. I think we can probably all agree that uh, without regard, regard doesn't really make sense. I bet you've heard someone boast that they've turned their life around 360 degrees. Well, there's nothing really to brag about there, is there? What they probably meant that it was a a 180-degree change in their life, heading in the opposite direction. While 360 degrees might sound like a much bigger change, really means that they've come full circle, right back to the same exact spot where they started. With all these, people would probably get your point, even if you made it wrong. But if your point is important, well, you don't want to leave room for miscommunication. When God makes his point, He doesn't leave much room for miscommunication or misinterpretation. And when he sent his prophets to his people with a word or with a message, it may not have come with all the details they would have liked, like when and where and how, uh, but they got it, often to the detriment of the messenger. And with Jeremiah's messages, the news wasn't often good. Jeremiah was born the son of a priest, and that would normally have been the occupation that, that he would have been trained for. But his life wasn't destined to be normal. In his own words, he would later write, this is in chapter 1 of his book in the Bible, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now before we... Talk about what that says to Jeremiah. What's it say about God? That he knows your past, your present, and your future. He's there in all of them. In fact, for him, it's like today. But what would you say if you were Jeremiah? What if God came to you like that with a word? I remember, you're probably maybe 20 years old tops at this time. Well, like young Samuel had done and like Moses had done before him, you'd probably try to come up with an excuse why you weren't qualified for such an important job. Ah, Lord, Jeremiah answered, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. All true. He was a young guy. And and, and public speaking wasn't his forte. At least not yet. But God doesn't take our age or our shortcomings or even our concerns into consideration when he chooses a role for you to play in his salvation story. In the context of his big picture, anything and everything is possible. Do not say I'm only a youth, God told him, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah says that God put his hand out and touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Because the book of Jeremiah is so well uh, dated uh, with references to things we can track, we know that happened about 627 B.C. And Jeremiah served the Lord as his prophet in Judah for over 40 years, one of the longest, longest uh, stints ever. And for, for prophets. He brought the word of the Lord to a whole succession of kings. You know, God's word doesn't depend on the fallibility or the infallibility of the messenger. And that's that's really good news for pastors all over the world. Sadly though, for Jeremiah's world, most of the words God had him deliver were, were warnings of doom and gloom and destruction for falling away from God. His world was experiencing a political upheaval at that time. The once powerful kingdom of Assyria was in rapid decline. And Babylon and Egypt were battling to fill that void. During the reign of one of the few kings that Jeremiah served, the good kings, uh, a young king named Josiah who actually ascended the throne when he was only eight years old. This is a few years after that, though. He wasn't that young at this time. Um, The book of the law had been rediscovered or discovered during some temple renovations. Can you imagine God's people losing the law of God? But it happened. It was like, uh, have you seen Deuteronomy? I haven't seen Deuteronomy. No, I didn't see it. Uh, No. Not only did they lose it, they forgot they lost it. They were a couple kings before Josiah uh, that led the people away. And when Josiah saw it, it, was presented to him, and he read it, it was a real wake-up call for him. And he worked really hard to bring the people back to God. And it was working. But about that same time, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, whose nation had become little more than a vassal of Assyria then, um, he decided it was time to make his move. And so he brought his chariots north through Israel to help what was left of Assyria battle Babylon. Josiah unwisely decided that he would stand in his way. And not only were the Israelites trounced, Josiah was killed. Now, the Pharaoh appointed the next king of Judah, Josiah's older son. Now, that wasn't God's pick, and it wasn't the people's choice either. Uh, And Jeremiah was called into action. And he warns the people that God would use Babylon as his agent of judgment, that they would successfully uh, invade Judah. Well, of course, nobody wanted to hear that. And so they banned Jeremiah from speaking in the temple. Others sought to kill the messenger. Because he wasn't allowed to speak in public, he dictated his his message to Baruch, his scribe. Baruch was advised by some of the king's advisors that he and the prophet might want to think about going into hiding for a while. When the king heard the, the words of Jeremiah, when he heard the scroll read and, and he heard God's plan to lower the Babylonian boom on his, on his, his country, he, he cut the scroll into pieces with a penknife and burned it in a fire. Well, that didn't go well for him. In the end, Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, did descend on Judah, not just once, but three different times, taking its nobles, its warriors and its best and brightest, off into exile for nearly 70 years. Egypt would soon be defeated as well, and God's people who were left in Judah would live under a succession of uh, puppet kings, really, set in place by the Babylonian ruler. Against the word of God, spoken through the prophets to just, you know, wait it out. Some of the population escaped the invasion by fleeing to Egypt, where they, of course, succumbed to idol worship again. Jeremiah followed them like their conscience. Tradition says, not the Bible, but tradition says that, that he was stoned to death by his own people uh, while he was there. This, this guy, uh, he just couldn't catch a break. But so went his ministry. He was once thrown into an abandoned cistern and left to die. He lived under house arrest for a time. And he served God in, in diff- really difficult ways that tended to make him a flesh and blood object lesson of these, these horrible messages he had to bring. Uh, words from God of doom and gloom and destruction accompanied by a whole lot of personal abuse from the people he was bringing the message to. But in the middle of all those dark clouds of warning that the book of Jeremiah is are four chapters of sunshine, known as his book of comfort. He offers God's promise of restoration one day and a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. And that's where our lesson this morning comes from. The prophet Jeremiah shares a word from God this morning about a new covenant. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It was a word of hope and promise for after the fall. A covenant was like a contract, and this contract was between God and his people. A new covenant would probably sound like pretty good news to the prophet. People hadn't done very well with the old one. And we don't usually hear new without adding and improved in our heads, right? New and improved. And that was really the case with this new covenant. God said, it won't be like the old one, the one I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's a lot of talk in Scripture like that. God talks about his relationship with his people as a, a marriage relationship. Uh, even Christ is the bridegroom, and the Church is the bride, and so for the people to to break this this covenant they had would have indicated their unfaithfulness, just as in a marriage relationship and He was talking about back after uh, four hundred years of of living in Egypt um what had begun as a welcoming place of refuge and uh, when they their their forefathers fled from a devastating drought in their own homeland um they found uh, peace. When, that was when Joseph was just second only to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, and they turned out to be so prosperous that, that after we don't know exactly how many years, but a long time, the, they became so prosperous that the Egyptians became fearful of them. And, and so they enslaved them. And God heard their cries and he sent Moses to rescue them and deliver them. And through a series of miraculous interventions, Moses does. And he leads them out of Egypt to Sinai where God gave him the two tablets of the covenant, the, the tablets containing the law of God, the, what we call the Ten Commandments. And on top of that, hundreds more rules and, and guidelines that, uh, that he didn't, evidently didn't write down, but uh, Moses he put them in his hat I guess, and inspired him to remember because Moses would later write them down. Now, the original deal was basically I'll be your God and you'll be my law-abiding people and I'll give you a new homeland to call your own a promised land flowing with milk and honey. But that covenant, that relationship to him as as his own people required obedience to the law as their part of the deal. And continually, they would fail miserably at it. Things like putting God first above everything else, remembering the Sabbath day, honoring your parents, uh, destroy, not destroying marriages by committing adultery, not murdering each other, not stealing from each other, not looking over your neighbor's back fence wishing you had something that belonged to your neighbor. Those were just the basics. The problem was that they couldn't or oftentimes simply wouldn't obey. You know, Moses hadn't even gotten back down the mountain with the tablets of the law before the people had already grown tired of waiting for him and We're were were kneeling down to a a golden calf. That was just the beginning of a long struggle that went on for centuries. Under the old Sinai covenant and the new covenant we live under since Jesus came, the way of salvation is really identical. A person is saved by faith in Christ. The believer under the old covenant looked ahead to the promised one of God, and that Savior would one day be revealed in the person of God's own son, Jesus the Savior who kept the law perfectly for us. The believer under the new covenant looks back on the accomplished work of Jesus. In the meantime, God had provided many ways under the old covenant for his people to receive his assurance of forgiveness through the various offerings and sacrifices he prescribed. Through all those guidelines he gave Moses about how to be the people of God, the repentant sinner could be assured that he had been reconciled or uh, made right again uh, with God. The Old Covenant always pointed to Jesus as its fulfillment. By its very nature, it was temporary. The rituals, the animal sacrifices, those things had to be repeated uh, continually, emphasizing its, its, continual, its uh, a temporary nature. The Apostle Paul describes the purpose of the Old Covenant in Galatians 3. He says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now the old covenant people had found it impossible to keep perfectly, and so no one could be saved by keeping it. And that showed their need for a Savior who could and would. And in Jesus, uh, he did for us. That's why God tells Jeremiah regarding their father's they broke my covenant. A Faith is always saved, and in Jeremiah's day, there was little doubt that after eight centuries of failing to keep the law, there wasn't going to be any salvation in works. But that was one of its purposes, so that ultimately, through repeated failures, they would realize their need for a Savior. In that same letter to New Testament believers in Galatia, Paul said, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified, not made right with God by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was a Jew. He'd been a Pharisee, a first century teacher of the law before being brought to faith in Jesus. And he understood that. The old covenant was limited to just one people and one nationality, to the Israelites, the Jews. But the new covenant is different. You know, God said it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. This one would be really for anyone who would simply accept God's gift of faith. It invites all people, regardless of nationality, to believe and be saved. It's an invitation to the whole world. Something that was demonstrated on Pentecost when Jesus' apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, proclaim this good news in languages that everyone in Jerusalem that day could understand, no matter where they come from. Languages that were really foreign to the apostles. Our relationship with God in Christ Jesus is no longer one of, I must. Now it says, I will. I can. I want to in return for all you've done for me. The priests under the old covenant had to sacrifice the blood of bulls and sheep And goats, because without the shedding of blood there could be no forgiveness. But now we have a new high priest, a new mediator in Christ Jesus, who became the fulfillment of that whole system of daily sacrifice when he became our once and for all time sacrifice as the Lamb of God who was crucified for our sins. The once and for all time. It's his sacrifice that pleases God, it's his sacrifice that removes our sin and guilt. He offered himself freely and he offered himself willingly. He shed his blood to take away our sin forever. It is his triumphant words from the cross, it is finished. The great temple curtain separating all but the high priest from the very presence of God and the holy of holies, tore in two, top to bottom, showing that a new and better way had finally come. It proclaimed that all the work of salvation was completed, finished, And even more, free for the asking. It's a salvation that was won in and through Christ alone. That's what John's Gospel is saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the moral code, the Ten Commandments, wasn't abolished. The old rituals and sacrifices were because their purpose was to point the people to Jesus. But even the Ten Commandments have been turned from a burden into a blessing. They guide our relationship with God now and with other people. They're not a burden that determines our salvation, but rather a way to thank God and to to live lives pleasing to him and in harmony with others. Now, we know God today because we know Jesus. In baptism, we become a part of his family and a part of that new covenant part of the family of faith with a a new hope and a sure future, renewed and restored. We'll still have problems. We'll still face trials. We'll still have to make some tough decisions in this life, but we don't have to face those troubles or make those decisions alone. We have God's Holy Spirit to comfort us and guide us and walk with us through those troubles. We have God's own Son, our Redeemer, who purchased us from slavery to sin with his own shed blood. We have God the Father who welcomes our prayers and our concerns. We're united with the one true Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bonded to him and to one another in a family of faith with a common gratitude of sins forgiven and a common future of forever with them in in heaven. Because our moral compass is been recalibrated and points once more to Jesus we know where to point others and we'll be given many opportunities to do exactly that as children of God we can experience the comfort of God even in crisis and most of all you know we're assured that we're not unloved and we're not lost we know exactly where we're headed and we know why and for all that we give God thanks Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding God keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We we'll continue